in order that all sentient beings may attain Buddhahood. From my heart I take refuge in the three jewels. In order that all sentient beings may attain Buddhahood. From my heart I take refuge in the three jewels. In order that all sentient beings may attain Buddhahood. From my heart I take refuge in the three jewels. Whatever the virtues and the many fields of knowledge, all our steps on the paths of omniscience, May these arise in the clear mirror of intellect. <clears throat> Om Manjushri, please accomplish this. Oh, hold on one second. Oh, good evening. Hi, welcome. Happy New Year, Caitlin, Eric, Kevin, Gail. Hi. Happy New Year. Barbara and everyone else who's been hanging out, talking about the lung and other parts of the body. So tonight we continue with our uh, journey through the wonderf wonderful, simple, clear, lighthearted, concise, pithy, short book called Luminous Heart. <clears throat> and also this book which is none of the above, <laughs> but we love it anyway. And if I remember correctly, last year, all the way back in last year, we almost made it through the text called Pointing Out, the treatise Pointing Out the, uh, help me out, Pointing Out what? Tathagata. The Tathagata is what? Heart. Heart. The Tathagata heart. Thank you. Right? The treat is pointing out the Tathagata heart. If I only had a heart. Treaties on pointing out the Tathagata heart. Just at the end, actually, there's a summary uh, of, the, of the text that I thought was pretty helpful compared to the rest of it, the commentary by uh, Rongjung Dorje. I'm sorry, um, Jongjung Kongshul, that is, on Rongjung Dorje's text, a commentary in the form of uh, focusing on three sutra quotations. So that's page 252 of the hard copy. And it's section 4.5.2. Uh, actually, why don't we backtrack slightly? 4.5, gaining certainty about the explanation of the essence through scripture. 
for those of you following a digital format, everybody. Okay, cool. This has four parts, which are the four, three uh, sources, and then a summary. And the first quote is from the Mahayana Sutra Alamkara, which is the compendium or ornament of Mahayana Sutras, the condensation of the vast ocean of Mahayana Sutras by Maitreya, as transmitted by Asanga. And he says, at the time of realization, just as with the subsiding of heat and iron and blurred vision in the eyes, the mind and wisdom of a Buddha are not said, are not said to be existent or non-existent. Using these wonderful analogies of the uh, presence of heat and heated up iron and the uh, disappearance of that heat as it cools and similar with blurred vision in the eyes. In general, through the prajna arising from study, reflection, and meditation, the three types of prajna, and in particular, the dependently orig originating blessings of the guru and the disciples' devotion coming together auspiciously, mind is such the basic nature of the sugata heart is directly realized. That time is just as in the examples of the eventual subsiding of heat and burning iron, meaning no more painful torment, and the subsiding of painful blurred vision in the eyes, meaning no more blurred vision, so no more um, kleshas, uh, clearly representing the two obs obs obscurations, the obscuration of kleshas, which is the heat and the iron, the pain of the kleshas, and then the blurred vision is the cognitive obscuration of not understanding the true nature of reality as being without a nature. Therefore, at that point, it is neither the case that the entities of heat and blurred vision exist, nor that the iron and clear sight, which are characterized by the former to having subsided, do not exist, since they are still existent in both cases, in both states or times. Likewise, when Buddhists have awoken, become awoke from or cleared away ignorance and unfolded their wisdom, like a napkin unfolding. What did I, uh, Kevin? I'm lost. What page are you on? I'm on the, now the top of 252. Okay, thanks. About the third, fourth line. Mine, i.e. the eight collections of consciousness, is cleared away and the five wisdoms have unfolded. As for the state of Buddhahood, the stains or the mistakenness of seeming reality, just the seed and blurred vision, are not said to be existent, while Buddhahood itself is not said to be non-existent either, just as iron and clear eyesight. So this, this uh, explanation of uh, an analogy given to demonstrate how ignorance is non-existent and disappears, even though it was non-existent, and how wisdom in Buddhahood appears, even though it was not uh, concealed before. Or, uh, sorry, it was, it was concealed, but it was uh, existent before and after. And then we have a quote from uh, Noble Nagarjuna's 
Mahayana Vimshika, the summary of the great vehicle in 20 verses, since there is no arising ultimately, so nothing is produced, ultimately nothing comes into being ultimately. In terms of true reality, there's no liberation either. Really nothing changes in ultimate reality. Buddhas are just a space. And sentient beings have the same characteristic, i.e. they are space. Since the here and the hereafter are unarisen, there is no natural nirvana either. Since the state of being uh, deluded in samsara and the state of being liberated into nirvana are unarisen, are not produced, because nothing is genuinely produced, because there's nothing that has an entity that could come into being from nothing, nor is there the possibility of something disappearing into nothing. So neither are unarisen, so there's no natural nirvana either. Natural nirvana was said to be the uh, sort of that which surpassed the idea of the Hinayana nirvana of with, with remainder and without remainder. Nirvana of arhats that occurs while they're alive is with remainder, and after they pass into par, nirvana is without remainder. Therefore, conditioned formations are empty. The sphere of omniscient wisdom. Ultimately, Kongshul's commentary, that is, in the definitive sense, since all phenomena are primordially not arising in terms of this ultimate true reality, there's nothing to be liberated from samsara either. Just as space is without arising and ceasing and as changeless Buddhas are unchanging throughout all phases. Hence, apart from merely realizing this or not, both sentient beings and Buddhas have the same characteristic and are inseparable in essence. The only difference between realizing the true nature of reality or not but their essence is the same. Since the here, samsara, and hereafter nirvana are both unarisen, there is no natural nirvana either. For that reason, all phenomena that are conditioned formations are empty and identityless. Consequently, this inconceivable point is the sphere of omniscient Buddha wisdom alone, but inconceivable for everybody else. So in other words, there's no point trying to understand the Buddha heart, the Tathagata heart, because only Buddhas can understand it. And yet, it's worth trying to understand it, because just grappling with the inconceivable helps us dissolve the conceivable. And uh, thirdly, we have a quote from the Uttara Tantra, the unsurpassable continuum by Maitreya. Since it is subtle, it is not an object of study. Since it is the ultimate, it is not one of reflection. Since it is the profound nature of phenomena, it is not one of mundane meditations, and so forth. The commentary says, since the true nature of all phenomena, this Buddha heart is hard to fathom and very subtle, and thus beyond being an object of speech, thought, and expression. It is not an object of the prajna arising from study. Can't be gotten out through study, although study is essential as a beginning step. Since it is the ultimate reality, it is also not an object of the prajna arising from reflection, 
through examination and analysis, although those, again, are essential preliminaries, as the latter is a part of seeming reality, uh, meaning, I think, the prajna arising from reflection. Um, it is not able to evaluate the ultimate just as it is. The conceptual remains within the realm of the conceptual. Since it is the true nature of all phenomena whose profound ground is hard to fathom and thus beyond the sphere of characteristics it cannot be realized by making it the object of mundane meditations such as a mindfulness-based stress reduction or the four uh, samadhis of the four realms and the four formless meditative absorptions and so forth either which includes the four applications of mindfulness, body, feelings, mind, and phenomena, the meditation on dependent origination and progressive or ascending and reverse order, meaning the 12 nadanas from ignorance through uh, old age and death, or in their reverse order, the eight liberations and the meditative absorption of cessation of shravakas and pratyeka buddhas. So, summarizing the meaning taught in all these sutras, as well as the tantras, it is the sphere of personally experienced wisdom. It is the realm of um, individually realized wisdom. Confidence in the self-arisen gives rise to the ultimate. Alas, since they do not realize this way of being, childish beings roam the ocean of samsara. You may wonder, you may be wondering, those of you home, those of you here today, may be wondering if mind is such the luminous Sugata heart is not an object that is realized by any of those factors just mentioned then what is the means to realize it? God damn it. It is the sphere of the personally experienced wisdom of yogins. As for the means to manifest it, the Dharma Dhatu is awakened through the power of the virtue of the previous familiarization with the self-arisen heart that is the basic ground of being, which is what we're doing, previously familiarizing ourselves with it. And it is this very Dharma Dhatu that appears as the gurus who are endowed with all supreme aspect aspects okay through the power of our trust in and certainty about its being like that unbearable intense longing wells up understanding um, these two things that is the basic ground of being and that it appears as enlightened beings by virtue of that the inexpressible experience of Eric? all. Yes, sir. So we're going to give up desire through desire? Um, how would you do that? Yeah, that's what I'm asking. Ah, how would you give up desire through desire by like... Terrible, intense longing wells up. Isn't that don't desire? Don't you have to desire? to let go of desire in order to let go of it? <laughs> you have to want to let go of it? Well, don't you? 
And who who is it that wants to let go? You guys, I'm just a simple reader. You can't ask me all these difficult questions. I don't know who desires. I don't know who. I don't know who. But that's what he's saying, though, right? I mean, he's saying unbearable, intense longing wells up, and it's through that. That's that's where we got to go. Is longing the same thing as desire? Not necessarily. If it's, you know, generally desire in the Klesha sense is something, you know, wanting something for oneself. But um, how about how about this? Having awakened, but not clear what happened to you, then you have a longing to figure out your awakening, which leads you to this. Doing this. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm. Other than that, I agree with you. You're saying, you're, saying longing, you're saying this longing is a fruitional thing that's there, or that happens, like I guess, at the point of heat. Yeah, I, I mean, I agree with you. This isn't doesn't seem to be right because that seems like it's saying clinging. Well, I don't think so. I, th- I don't think longing but, is the same thing as clinging. Okay. I think it's, I think it's different. Yeah, well, let's parse that. And take my other interpretation. I, let's, let's definitely parse that difference. If it's if it's something else, if it's a different energy, then then you know let, let's let's. Uh, clinging is holding on to something that that you yeah. have. Right. Longing is really. Um, it it's almost feels like it's. But I'm just saying. A, look to the beginning of the paragraph. First, you have to have that experience. Then you're going to have a longing to understand that experience. So it's not just plain old longing. It's relative to the first part of the paragraph. Well, and the rest of the paragraph is very relevant, too, because the longing goes on to cause the inexpressible experience of all possible appearances to appear as the guru that leaves the stamp on all phenomena which triggers confidence beyond time which leads to a bunch of other stuff so it sounds to me like the longing is a step that leads to a bunch of other stuff but not in and of itself the goal or the final step that's your cue to keep reading uh, yeah, keep going. So, so where in the five paths are we now at this point? Uh, we're in the path of accumulation. Okay. Mary Beth? Devotion. Yeah. It sounds like devotion. Yeah. It's, it's one of the most important qualities on the path, right? Devotion to for what? Well, the guru. Uh, let's see. Um, through the power of our trust and uncertainty about its being like that. Truth. The ground, the ground of being. Um, the ground of being being the Tathagata heart and the manifestation of that as being various enlightened beings 
through conviction about that, we, we experience intense devotion towards reality. Represented, represented by enlightened beings. You could say it's also touching into the notion of the ultimate guru. If you look at the different types of guru, you have both obviously devotion to the, the ones we see and hear, but also I think they're also looking at that quality of devotion to the ultimate, relating to the ultimate guru. And, uh, and this leads to uh, the ultimate being cleared away on its own. Uh, sorry, this leads to all that obscures the ultimate being cleared away on its own, and thus gives rise to the wisdom of directly realizing the final culmination of wisdom. So yeah, without yearning for for uh, en enlightenment or for reality, it's, you can't you can't uh, actualize enlightenment. You have to have intense longing. Otherwise, there's no way to progress. Is that a problem? No, no. It, it, it sounds to me like um, the, this explanation about devotion makes a lot of sense. Good. Thank you for focusing on it and clarifying that. Maitreya says, the ultimate of the self, arisen ones, is to be realized through confidence. Then unbearable great compassion, unbearable, wells up naturally for those who are in the three realms and do not realize this in accordance with the stages of realizing the basic nature. Not only that, to practice meditation for the sake of those beings is the great ally of the children of the victors, i.e. bodhisattvas. Therefore, in order to instruct those who follow this path in such a manner, with his loving mind, this victor, Rongjung Dorje summarized the meaning of his text in a concluding dedication. Since this needs to be done through a phrase that is easily accessible, he combined all that is said here as follows. Alas, since they do not realize this way of being of the profound basic nature, childish beings in whom the prajna regarding the points to be adopted and rejected has not arisen roam the ocean of samsara through engaging in what is mistaken. They truly are objects of compassion. And then the con conclusion through the manner of obtaining this text has two parts, and the first is the actual manner of obtaining. The root verses by Rongjung Dorje state through the power of the great sage Manjushri Gosha, Maitreya and Avalokiteshvara. This was written by Rongjong Dorje. For countless aeons, the third Karmapa familiarized himself with the stainless words of our guide, the great sage Shakyamuni, and the liberating life examples of Manjushri Gosha, the embodiment of supreme knowledge, the regent Maitreya, the source of happiness and excellence for all sentient beings, and the supreme noble Avalokiteshwar who stirs the depths of samsara through his compassion. By the power of that and through revealing without error the intention of the words of the victor and his children as well as the treatises on them in his present life, as Rangjung Dorje, he lovingly, lovingly instructed future beings to be guided 
through having attained the great power and might of that, this treatise on the actuality of the Sukkota heart was written in a clear manner for the welfare of others by the glorious third Karmapa Brongjong Dorje. Might, might, like, might be better, let's see. He lovingly instructed future beings to be guided. How could he instruct future beings? That's a tough one, but I'm not going to quibble over that. An aspiration prayer. May all beings know this Buddha heart perfectly and without error. Here, here, this completes the determination of the Buddha, Buddha heart, the essence of the essence of the Vajrayana. That was a surprise. I thought we were just going to say the Mahayana. Shubham, auspiciousness. Thus, though this final activity of the Mahayana has already been proclaimed by countless Buddhas, the virtue of illuminating it is associated with an infinitely great benefit. Therefore, Rongjung Dorje passes on this virtue to all beings, the objects to whom he dedicates it. By the power of that, may all these sentient beings, through perfectly studying, reflecting, and meditating on this profound instruction on the essential point, this very Buddha heart that exists in themselves, know and realize the basic nature, pure of all adventitious stains, without error. This determination of the Buddha heart, which is clearly and extensively taught in the causal yana, is also the quintessence of the view of the Vajrayana, of secret mantra. Therefore, this completes the explanation of the final view. It is profound and not realized by all, but when realized, it is the actuality of becoming a Buddha. Understanding just a fraction will pierce the thick cocoon of adventitious stains. Even the dawning of mere trust in the existence of this heart is said to make you a successor to the victors. This excellent text that summarizes the meaning so that it's easy to understand <coughs> Please perfect it through understanding, experience, and realization with a mindset on benefiting those of equal fortune. I commented merely on the words by following the Supreme Ones. Through this virtue, may all beings meet the Sukkot heart face to face. Boom, 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 boom. For this text that determines the heart, there exists some earlier and later commentaries and interlinear annotations. However, among these, the words of John Young, Tundra Buser, are especially eminent. Their meaning is summarized in the interlinear annotations written by the omniscient fifth Sharmapa, Kuncho Yenlok. Taking the essence of these texts, I, Karma Nong, Yunten Gyasa Lojo Tai, Dei, Tai Bei, <laughs> clarified the excellent explanations of earlier commentators, commentaries which are authentic sources of valid cognition at the temple of Peipong Tupden Chukor Ling, the great Kagyu seat in Do Kam. Do Kam. May virtue increase. Phew. So you all got that? You remember? You're going to remember that, right? When anybody asks you to explain Buddha nature, you all have that clear, just like simple profound, very pristine, right? Okay, one more time. We're going to go through it one more time through Pawa Tsukluk Trangwa's uh, presentation of Kaya's Wisdoms and Enlightened Activity, which is on page uh, 325 of our book and is Appendix 1 
of the texts, digital, world-wise, wisely, wordly, I mean, something like that. The nature of Buddha. So I'm going to skip around, like, because I'm not going to go through all this detail again. But there's uh, some interesting stuff here that I, I would like to go through. And I'll try to make it easy to figure out where I'm flitting about to. So starting at the very beginning, the nature of Buddhahood. By virtue of having relinquished the two obscurations, including their latent tendencies, and having mastered the four wisdoms, the kaya that is not different from the dharmadhatu is perfect Buddhahood for the following reasons. Kaya that is not different from the Dharma Dhatu is perfect, but if the two obscurations, including their latent tendencies, have not been relinquished, the Dharma Dhatu is not established as Buddhahood. The four wisdoms have the nature of the three Kayas. What is primordially present as the nature of the Dharma Dhatu is fully realized as the Dharma Dhatu, just as it is, just as the space within a vase and the space outside are not different when the vase has been destroyed. So that's the cryptic introductory verse, and the text is meant to explain that. Uh, let's see, Uttara Tantra says, Buddhahood is indivisible, yet consists of pure dharmas. So it's, it's indivisible, and yet it has characteristics. The two characteristics of wisdom and relinquishment, which are similar to the sun and space. Good, good similes for wisdom and relinquishment, or wisdom is blossoming and relinquishment is abandoning. In addition, also the lineage of profound, of profound view presents both aspects of purification, song, and unfolding. So, two things in this sentence. The lineage of profound view refers to one of the two main lineage streams of the Mahayana tradition, a profound view and vast activity. And uh, the lineage of profound view was uh, um, kicked off by Nagarjuna and his main student, Aryadeva, sometime around 150 or 200 or so of the Common Era. And the lineage of vast activity was initiated by Maitreya and Asanga and his brother Vasubandhu in around uh, 350, 400, common era. So the uh, in implication is that Nagarjuna focused on supreme understanding, supreme prajna, wisdom, profound view, and that Maitreya and Asanga focused on, on the the stages of the path and the activity of the bodhisattva along those paths, path, along that path. As for relinquishment, oh, so then we have the both aspects of purification and unfolding. So the two characteristics of wisdom and relinquishment are here described as purification and unfolding. Purification is relinquishment and unfolding is uh, wisdom. And they give the Tibetan in parentheses, and that's the Tibetans translated the word Buddha, which really just means the awakened one, one who's awake or awoke, wise in that way, into Tibetan using those two terms as a way of uh, conveying the meaning 
in, instead of just uh, translating the, the literal term Buddha. So Sangye. As for relinquishment, it means having relinquished the afflictive obscurations, the kleshas, passion, aggression, or attachment, aggression, and ignorance, and or a stupid, uh, let's see, uh, stubborn stupidity, bewilderment. There are different ways of distinguishing that ignorance that appears in the three poisons from fundamental ignorance that is the essence of the the cognitive obscuration. And the cognitive obscuration is uh, the not knowing of the nature of reality. On this, uh, let's see, so then he quotes, he gives these quotes that are not terribly helpful. And here's an interesting, uh, helpful little description of these obscurations on page 326 after the quote. In the scriptures of the lineage of profound view, the factor of being ignorant about knowable objects, so that's the knowledge obscuration, is explained as the cognitive obscurations and the obscurations of meditative absorption that function as obstacles to certain samadhis. So you'll remember that sometimes we encounter there being three obscurations, the, co the cognitive obscurations, the afflictive obscurations, and meditative obscurations. And so he, the author is saying that um, the meditative obscurations, when when there's only two obscurations presented, the obscurations to meditation are um, applied to one of those two, of afflictive and cognitive, respectively, as appropriate. The obscurations of meditative absorption that function as obstacles to certain samadhis are included in the two obscurations as appropriate. The manifest forms of these two obscurations are relinquished on the paths and bhumis, and finally their most subtle latencies are eradicated through the vajra-like samadhi so that they do not arise again. And the scheme is basically that the gross afflictive obscurations are eliminated at the path of seeing, and the um, gross form of the uh, um, the main part of the cognitive obscurations are also relinquished at the path of seeing, and then the subtle aspects of the afflictive obscurations are eliminated over the first seven bhumis. So by the end of the seventh bhumi, all the afflictive obscurations are are completely relinquished. And um, the uh, remainder of the gross uh, cognitive obscurations are relinquished over boomies one through seven. And then this thing called latent tendencies are relinquished, uh, which are the uh, subtle, um, the subtle remainders or habitual tendencies of the cognitive obscurations are eliminated over Bhumis 8 through 10. This is excellent relinquishment. When one has arrived at this culmination of having relinquished everything that has to be relinquished, everything to be realized is fully known. And skipping to the next paragraph, he uses this image of the analogy of the gem covered by dross which we've seen 
before many times, so I'm going to skip to the uh, next paragraph. As for all phenomena, always abiding is nothing but the Dharma Dhatu, which is unconditioned like space. This is just like the space within a vase and the space outside not being different, even when the vase has not been destroyed. Once it's been destroyed, the indivisibility of the inner and outer space becomes manifest as this very indivisibility of the Dharma Dhatu. Likewise, the nature of the mind, which is primordially present as the Dharmadhatu, resembles the space within the vase, similar to the indivisibility of inner and outer space becoming manifest once the vase of the mind has been destroyed. The vase of the, the mind, the obscured mind, the mind that's obscured by the two obscurations has been destroyed. Uh, once the vase-like stream of formational concepts and mind has come to an end, the non-difference of the Dharmadhatu, inside and outside, is manifest. Skipping to the next paragraph, as for the layers of obscurations, just as strands of hair may appear to those with blurred vision, they never existed through a nature of their own, but are nothing but appearances from the mis perspective of the mistakenness because assumptions such as something previously existing ceasing later and something previously not existing arising later are taught as the views of permanent extinction which are not allowed in Buddhism. So, um, this view of something previously existing ceasing later is the idea that obscurations have been eliminated. And that's a, an extreme view. The view that Buddhahood or Buddha qualities were not manifest, were not existent earlier, but become existent later is an extreme view. The first is the extreme view of annihilation, the other, the second is the extreme view of, per, of permanence, and neither one is acceptable. Therefore, all phenomena are not different in that they're not being present as any forms of superimposition. Uh, superimposition is. Uh, is the uh, um, holding of uh, per things as being permanent and denial is holding the, the idea that things can be extinguished such as existence and non-existence whatsoever cannot be altered by anybody be it at the time of being or not being a Buddha. So this is though he's pointed out the mistaken way to understand the uh, nature of Buddha heart the Buddha heart and um, Buddhahood and the process of enlightenment. Skipping to the next paragraph, therefore the attainment of Buddha is also referred to as attaining nothing whatsoever or attaining the supreme among all states, sort of the two ends of the spectrum. All phenomena being completely and perfectly realized in all aspects, a realization is a mere name, name rather. No phenomena has been realized is realized or will be realized, having gone beyond all phenomena, or not having moved away in the slightest from any phenomena. So he goes through all these different sort of contradictory, opposing, extreme ways of, of describing the enlightenment of Buddhahood, neither of which is ultimately true, ultimately correct. Skipping the, the quote, um, he says, thus this is explained in, all, in detail in all the sutras and treatises, all of which he, I just went through. Furthermore, in the Bodhisattva Bhumi, enlightenment is explained as twofold, 
relinquishment and twofold wisdom. Relinquishment of the two obscurations and the wisdom that knows the relative and the ultimate. Pure wisdom. Number two, pure wisdom, omniscience, wisdom without attachment, the annihilation of the afflictions and the relinquishment of non-afflicted ignorance. This term non-afflicted ignorance is, is a way of distinguishing ignorance that is part of the afflictive obscuration. Thirdly, it's being endowed with 140 unique Buddha dharmas, dispassion, knowledge through aspiration, and and um, four, and the four discriminating awarenesses, and four being endowed with the seven kinds of genuineness, kayas, accomplishment, excellence, wisdom, power, relinquishment, and abiding. More lists. So cool to discover even new lists, the seven kinds of genuineness. I like that. Um, thus, so far, there are five systems of explaining Buddhahood. If anybody can figure out which five he's referring to, you get a prize. You get a free pizza delivered to your home. Hot. If it's not hot, you don't pay for it. Um, the Mahayana Sutra Alamkar explains the attainment of the threefold change of state as enlightenment. The threefold. Interesting. Anyway, following the Buddha Bhumi Sutra, enlightenment is explained as the inseparability of Dhatu and wisdom. And this is a very curious um, way of categorizing things. Things meaning, in sort of, I'm using that term as a way of saying, categorizing a lot of different, or it's used in many different circumstances. There's wisdom, we're pretty clear on that. Is What that is, Dhatu. What is Dhatu? You know, does Dhatu refer to the the bodies of Buddhahood, the qualities, the powers, and wisdoms, and so forth? It's it's not uh, completely evident. Anyway, it these seems, uh, Derek, it seems yes, like that term just gets used over and over in different ways throughout these many traditions. It does. It does. Yeah, it's sort of confusing, but. Isn't it like it, uh, space also, like the sp space in which the wisdom was arising or something? I don't know. I thought it was like a, a moment, Datu, or sometimes it's the nature. Hmm. I, I, don't know. I think it's a it's a measure of fish. <laughs> Some, yeah. Sometimes <laughs> also gotra, the disposition. Gotra, yeah, nature. Anyway, there's a lot of ways of just describing these things, right? So, um, what is it? What is it when it's used as Dharma Dat part of Dharma Datu? It's the realm, the realm of Datu, the realm of sorry, the realm of Dharma, the realm of reality. Uh -huh. Yeah, you know, so Datu often means realm or space, but it can also mean the uh, sort of essence. Uh, let's see. The divisions. So, Buddhahood is undivided, and yet it has divisions. All these contradictory things from the point of view of limited dualistic mind. Since space is omnipresent and without distinction, space is called single. 
which means indivisible. Likewise, perfect Buddhahood is beyond all phenomena and does not move away from all phenomena or is present as the nature of all phenomena, but since it is not observable as anything whatsoever, perfect Buddhahood is also said to be single and not divisible into anything because any of its divisions depend on the minds of individual beings, while Buddhahood itself is not an object of anybody's mind. This is one specification of the definitive meaning. He supports this with quotes, which I'll skip. Bottom of the page, after the three quotes, still just the space is divided through conceptions into the space towards the east and so on. Such labels are superimpositions onto it. Distinctions with Buddhahood are made by way of individual people taking it as a referent in different ways. That's it's, it's divided into two, three, four, and five, up through infinite kayas. Right, all these different kayas, numerical schemes of them. Therefore, it can be said to be twofold as the ultimate kaya, one's own welfare, and the seeming symbolic kaya, the welfare of others, that is supported by the former. So he goes through the twofold kaya, the various options of that. He goes through a couple of options of the twofold kaya, and then he goes or. As for the kayas being threefold in the Suvarna Prabhasotana Prabhasotama Sutra, all Tathagatas possess three kayas Dharmakaya, Sambhogakaya, and Nirmanaka. That's the standard thing. Um, or the scriptures speak of the Swabhavaka Kaya plus the Sambhogakaya and Nirmanakaya, replacing Dharmakaya with Swabhavaka Kaya. And he gives some quotes from that. Or, when divided by taking the Dharmakaya as the basis of division, the three Kayas are the Swabhavaka Kaya, Sambhogakaya, and Nirmanaka Kaya, being the three, kaya, three aspects of the Dharmakaya. And, um, let's see. Or the kayas are three as the profound Swabhavaka kaya, the vast Sambhoga kaya, and the magnanimous Nirmanaka. In other words, he's just going through all these different ways of presenting the divisions of Buddha heart, Buddha nature. Um, let's see, skipping to the next page of the hard copy. There's a paragraph that says, Thus, having explicitly taught four wisdoms and four kayas, this sutra explains that they're all inseparable from Dharmadhatu wisdom. In its brief summary, it explains five wisdoms. Uh, let's see. Actually, I want to skip more of this. Uh, let's see. Accordingly, the Buddhakayas appear in as many numbers as the conceptions of those to be guided. That's sort of the conclusion. However, just the space. So I'm in the middle of 332. After a quote from the Samadhi Raja Sutra. However, just the space can be divided in any way whatsoever, whereas the extent of space is not found by anybody, the Buddhakayas are simply inconceivable, for its manner of being inconceivable is explained repeatedly and in detail by all of the same sutras. And he gives these quotes from the sutras. Oh, let's see, then skipping to the next page. 
it goes through all the different um, metaphors for the different kayas. On uh, 3.33, he says, the Dharmakaya is taught through the first three among the Uttara Tantra's nine examples, a Buddha statue, honey, and a kernel, and so forth. Uh, the the Sambhogakaya is the next next three of the nine um, analogies, and the Nirmanakaya is the last three of the nine. Uh, but continuing to skip, let's see. On page 334, after, let's see, it's the last quote before the kaya, the, the subject, the uh, header that says, Kaya's and Wisdom's in the Lineage is a Profound View and Vast Activity for Henrietta. After that quote, it says, it may be said, but since the kayas, three kayas are then taught <coughs> through both the first three and the last three examples, it follows that this is repetitive. However, then it would equally follow that all nine examples are rep repetitions, since they all teach, teach the Sugga to heart, and that the last three examples alone are so too because they teach nothing but Buddhahood. If it is said that these are not repetitive by virtue of different purposes, just the same applies here. So in other words, they're all somewhat repetitive, and yet they all reveal different aspects of Buddhahood. Skipping to the Next, um, let's see, skipping to the next section. Kayas and wisdoms in the lineages of profound view and vast activity. According to scholars, the lineage of profound view, through having trained on the paths, <coughs> excuse me, of familiarizing with the entire collection of the firewood of noble objects. What a great phrase. The firewood of noble objects. That's what most of us do most of our life. We train in the firewood of noble objects. We become experts in that firewood. Um, so that means we burn up the noble objects? <laughs> ideally, ideally. But most most of us like uh, collect it, rather. But... Uh, by familiarizing with the entire collection of the firewood of noble objects being without nature. There you go. Also the mere very dry rest. The mere very dry rest of this collection that is free from the moisture of rarefication. So it's ready to burn very quickly. Is burned without remainder through the flame of the instantaneous prajna at the end of the continuum of the ten bhumis, the vajra like samadhi, in a single instant. Then, with no fire, where there's no fire either, therefore also wisdom itself, which is like a burning fire, comes to rest within the, there we have it again, within the datu, through which the dharma datu, just as it is, is revealed. It is revealed as the dharmakaya. He supports that with a quote. And let's see, skipping some of these quotes. Um, on page 336, after the quote from the uh, Madhyamaka Avatara, he says, This also eliminates the assertion that just as the nirvana without remaining of Shravakas and Pratyeka Buddhas, Buddhahood in the Madhyamaka system is held to be the extinction of a continuum as in the case of a fire having died out, died out. So this eliminates the assertion that Buddhahood is the extinction of a continuum. 
in the in the Mahayanas and particularly the Madhyamaka system, Buddhahood is never an extinction of a continuum. There was no continuum. For such an assertion directly contradicts those above quotes with revealed to this Kaya and Supreme Peace, indicating that which is to be attained and you attain, explaining the manifesting of enlightenment. Um, which is a really clunky and unclear way of saying that. Uh, enlightenment is not the extinction of a continuum as it is presented in the Hinayana. Enlightenment is the extinction of a continuum, the blowing out of the momentum of a continuum. But in the Mahayana, there is no continuum and there's no extinction of nothing. As for the explanation in the scriptures of the lineage of profound view that Buddha, Buddhas do not possess wisdom. So, that, you know, the Garjan at certain places says the Buddhas don't have wisdom. Very surprising comment. The reasons are as follows. The very wisdom of the Vajra, like Samadhi, at the end of the continuum comes to rest within the Dhatu. <laughs> the Dharma Um Also, in general, those subject and object are never different within the nature of phenomena. Subject and object are never different within the nature of phenomena. Through not knowing ascension beings superimpose them onto this nature and thus simply cling to them as being different. In other words, they create a subject-object uh, structure to somebody who possesses wisdom, which is a completely inaccurate way of describing Buddhahood. Towards the end of that paragraph, he says, Therefore, it is explained that Buddhas do not possess wisdom, but it does not categorically explain that in general the four wisdoms, so on, do not absolutely exist. Because the only difference lies in their being explained through the names of kayas, or through the names of wisdoms, with the three kinds of kayas being accepted. This was not clear, sorry about that. I, I should have skipped that. Um, That's one question. Yes. <laughs> in terms of this continuum, continuum or no continuum, um, you know, first he says there's no extinction of the continuum, as you said, and then, and then in that next paragraph, I'm not sure if I'm understanding where the one that starts with the number seven fifty nine, where it says the very wisdom of the Vajra-like samadhi at the end of the continuum, is is that not saying that there was a continuum? Uh, there, that's a continuum of the path. That, that was the continuum of the path, and and the the continuum of the path is not extinguished. So enlightenment is not the extinguishment of it. Oh, okay. So it, it, they do talk about a continuum, but just not about extinction of it. Is that right? That's right. And, okay. And there's two different continuums. The one you're talking about is the continuum of the path, which is a figurative continuum, and the continuum in the Hinayana is is. Uh, meant much more, more in a reificatory way of reifying the continuum of an individual. And then my other question related to that is that there, they do talk in, about continuity in Vajrayana a bit, right? And yes. how does the notion of continuity differ from these notions of Continuum. continuum. Uh, in Vajrayana, we say that there's a continuity of ground, path, and fruition. So we say that um, we're in the Vajrayana, instead of going uh, from A uh, 
Oh, because they're all essentially? Yeah. Instead of going from A to C by virtue of B, we go from A to A by virtue of A. And so we, it's a continuum of ground, path, and fruition, and it's not an entity in the way that uh, the continuum of an individual is is made into an entity. Thanks. That's a great... On page 30, 338, which is after a quote from the Buddha Bhumi Sutra that ends with uh, the flaws of Derek, no, of sentient beings. In general, the secret mantra Yana explains five wisdoms. Finally, somebody acknowledges this, right? Uh, but in the, in the Yana of characteristics, meaning the Sutra Yana, there are many explanations of four wisdoms without applying the conventional term wisdom to the Dharma Dhatu in the middle of the five uh, fivefold Buddha Mandala. However, Though the Buddha Bhumi Sutra does not apply the conventional term wisdom to the Dharmadhatu in its brief introduction, if you read just the introduction, you would see it's not there. But if you read the entire text, its detailed explanation, it explains five wisdoms. And finally, Rob's Robert's favorite topic, the meaning of change of state here is that the state of the Dharmadhatu having stains before has later changed into a state other than that. It's being pure of stains. However, since the Dharmadhatu itself is primordially pure in all respects, there is no change of state of the Dharmadhatu itself. So the only thing that changes state is the stains. Change their state from being stains to being not being. And then we have what turns into what? Presto changeo. When the Ali consciousness has become pure of stains, it's called mirror-like wisdom or dharmakaya. In a clear mirror, one's face appears and if it demonstrates one's flaws and qualities. Brutal, huh? It is lucidly clear and it is the cause for reflections. It does not dwell in these reflections, the actual face, nor does it possess and not possess its reflections in the mirror. They appear in a complete manner and everything is suitable to appear in it. Therefore, a mirror is completely unbiased, but the blind and so forth don't see it. Likewise, as for the skaya, the rupakayas appear in it and demonstrate the dharma. It's lucidly clear by nature and it is the cause for the reflections of wisdom. The sky does not dwell in the rupakayas, nor does it possess nor does it possess or not possess the two rupakayas. So this uh, oblique way of describing how the kayas both exist within the dharmakaya and don't. The rupakayas, sorry. Both exist within the dharmakaya, but not really. Anyway, the key was the alia consciousness becomes mirror-like wisdom, or or Dharmakaya, and then skipping to 339, the first full paragraph, which is after that quote that ends in the stainless state of the Buddhas, the change of state of the afflicted mind, the seventh consciousness, is the wisdom of realizing the equality of all phenomena, the wisdom of equality. And he gives the ten perfections of equality, another new list. You can add to your lists of lists. Skipping uh, paragraph, the, ch 
the change of state of the sixth mental consciousness is the wisdom of knowing all phenomena in an unmixed distinct manner just as they are this is the all discriminating wisdom this discriminating wisdom and the wisdom of equality are expressed as the sambhogakaya so the mirror-like wisdom is dharmakaya and wisdom of equality and all the discriminating wisdom are sambhogakaya and he goes on about this wisdom for quite some time and skipping a few pages Uh, let's see, so ending up on page 342, which for, let's see, Henrietta is... I actually have page numbers. So oh, good. Oh, good. So, you, know, you just have to tell me the paragraph. paragraph. Yeah. yeah. So it's the first full paragraph on 342, and it says, As for the change of state of the consciousness of the five sense gates, such as the eyes, together with their appearing as if there were subjects and objects, it happens to the culminations of one's previous generation of bodhicitta and the efforts in order to accomplish the welfare of all beings since beginningless time. Oh, wait. Where does he say what it changes into? Okay. Um, oh, he's, he's leading up to it. Sorry. Sorry. Uh, let's see. Together with their appearing as if they were subject and objects happens through the culmination of one's previous generation of bodhicitta and the efforts in order to accomplish the welfare of all sentient beings since beginningless time. It is the uninterrupted manifestations of the welfare of other, others which equals the extent of space, yet is without effort and is non-conceptual. So 342, full, first full paragraph. Uh, it is the functional activity, uh, so, sorry, this is called all-accomplishing wisdom or nirmanakaya. So it affiliates the uh, eight levels of consciousness with the four wisdoms and affiliates those with the three kayas. It is the functional activity of all other kayas and wisdoms. And let's see. Then he goes through the skandhas. Uh, at the end of that first full paragraph, he says, in the Mahayana Sutra Lamkara, the change of state and the four wisdoms are explained separately. In the change of state of the five sense faculties, supreme mastery is attained over the perception of all other of all their objects and the arising of twelve hundred qualities in all of them sums up the that section of affiliating the the uh, eight consciousnesses and the wisdoms and the kayas. And then this refers this verse refers to the change of state of the skanda form. The four Changes of state of the afflicted mind, the sense consciousnesses, the conception, sorry, conception and the alia consciousness within the skanda of consciousness are explained by the following four verses respectively. So, um, then he, he describes how the uh, consciousness, the, those four types of consciousness of the skanda of consciousness are transformed. 
And then on the next page, we have the change of state of this conduct feeling and the change of state of this conduct discrimination. And then he says, thus explicitly, 11 kinds of change of state are explained. How do we get 11? We have five skandhas, and we had four different types of consciousness. We have the Alia consciousness, seventh consciousness, sixth consciousness, and then all of the five consciousnesses. That's four plus the five skandhas is nine. Plus... Are they counting the two kayas other than Dharmakaya? No, I think in the skanda of consciousness, they're counting some of the uh, the different mm. aspects of the consciousness to come up with 11. Although, I don't know if that works out exactly. So you, for extra extra credit, you get if you, if you figure out what the 11 are. And um, as for mirror-like wisdom, it is the foundation for the other three wisdoms. It's the Dharmakaya. So that makes sense. And it is endowed with eight characteristics. So I'm on the top of page 344. And he gives a quote, but then he explains it with a numerical list in the form of a paragraph. Mirror-like wisdom is without mind because the clinging to a self has come to an end. It engages objects fully without any limitations because it engages the dharmadhatu just as the Dharmadhatu is, and because it is non-dual with this Dhatu, it is described as ever-present, because it's always without decline, it is not ignorant about the entirety of noble objects, because the cognitive obscurations have been relinquished, it is never directed toward noble objects, because it lacks any discriminations in terms of being one or different, since the other three wisdoms arise from this wisdom, it is like a jewel mine, skipping the quote, since the nature of this wisdom is indeed the Dharmakaya, but the Sambhogakaya appears from it, it is the Sambhogakaya Buddhahood. This is presented from the point of view of its being the foundation of the latter, or from the point of view of their natures not being indifferent. In a brief, it is called mirror-like wisdom because it is the cause for the arising of the other three wisdoms, or the two rupakayas, which are all like reflections. Wisdom of equality has six qualities, so he goes uh, through all of those, and then... Um, the discriminating wisdom is endowed with four characteristics, and he goes through those, so I won't go through these in detail. And finally, this, at the end of this section, which is on 346, he says, as for why four wisdoms are presented, Mahayana Sujalamkara says, due to retaining due to equanimity, due to elucidating the perfect dharma, and due to accomplishing activities, the four wisdoms arise. So those are descriptions of the four wisdoms. Retaining is, the, I guess, the mirror-like wisdom. Wisdom of equality is due to equanimity, obviously. Elucidating the perfect dharmas is all discriminating, and then accomplishing activities, all accomplishing. In this way, in the above sutras, in the Mahayana Sutra Alamkara, the four wisdoms are taught as the three kayas. And that brings us to this section called Enlightened Activity, which um, turned out to be rather helpful, I thought, so I'll go through that in a more thorough manner. 
according to Abhisamaya Lamkara, which is one of the five texts of Maitreya that presents the path of the Bodhisattva in a, uh, an amazing way, and it's the condensation of uh, the Prajnaparamita Sutras. In that text, Abhisamaya Lamkara, which means the ornament of higher uh, realization, the nature of enlightened activity consists of 27 uninterrupted activities of guiding those to be guided as long as samsara lasts. 27. Not a common number for a list. Thus it is described as a fixed number of such activities that range from pacifying the states of non-leisure. <laughs> it's, it's an interesting way of describing a state of, like of torment, of non-leisure. <laughs> of beings and establishing them in the freedoms and riches of a precious human birth up through establishing them in the non-abiding nirvana. Enlightened activity not being fixed in number means that it is infinite because even the activities of Maras serve as the enlightened activity of Buddhas. The enlightened, sorry, the activities of Maras serve as the enlightened activities of Buddha. That's a slippery slope if I ever saw one. As it is said as in the Sagaramati Paripricha Sutra, the questions of uh, Sagaramati. In just the ways that Maras inflict their activities on bodhisattvas who perfectly engage in the superior intention, these bodhisattvas accordingly must vigor with great muster. Muster, sorry. Muster vigor. Always muster vigor. Muster your vigor with great power. Venerable Sarad, huh? Saradwati Putra, through this specification, you should understand that this very Mara activity is described as the enlightened activity of the Buddhas. It is not Mara activity. It's a show put on by the Buddhas in order to give you the opp opportunity to uh, further uh, practice the Bodhisattva Paramitas. The Sutra also says that there's no phenomena that does not serve as the enlightened activity of the Buddha. Buddhas, according to the Uttara Tantra, enlightened activity consists of promoting the immeasurable welfare of others. That entails being spontaneously present and uninterrupted. And he gives that quote, which I'll skip. Thus, enlightened activity is suitable to be described as either entailing the features of being all-pervading and permanent or entailing the features of being profound and vast. The same intention. As the Madhyamakavatara remarks in passing, I like the way he says, in passing, <laughs> meaning that, that he doesn't really dwell on it or make a big point of it. The profound quality is emptiness. Everything else, the other qualities are vast, meaning everything else is merit and uh, understanding emptiness is wisdom in terms of the two accumulations. Uh, he, he has a disagreement with some other Tibetans that I'll skip. And uh, the next paragraph asks for the manner in which enlightened activity is performed. It operates without effort or toil in a spontaneously present and uninterrupted manner. Summarizing the points described in the Jnana Loka um, Alamkara Sutra, the Uttara Tantra teaches enlightened activities through these nine examples. In this regard, the following probative statement, a probative sorry, argument, is one that proves something is to be formulated. The enlightened activity of the Buddhas 
as the subject of the statement, is operating in an effortless and spontaneous way as the hypothesis, the thesis. Because, why? The reason is that they are endowed with the enlightened mind of non-conceptual datu. I have that word datu again. <laughs> and wisdom is the reason. And just as in the nine cases of the physical form of Indra and so on are the examples. So somebody, one of you, I think Henrietta should do a study of the use of the term datu in the Mahayana literature for us and summarize that for us by next week, okay? Thank you. That would be very good. Um, it's establishing, in establishing the meaning of its nature, the thesis is efforts having subsided. The reason is non-conceptual mind, and the examples are such as the physical form of Indra. In establishing the meaning of its nature, the thesis is efforts have subsided, and the reason is non-conceptual mind. Interesting. As explained before, the Rupakais appear by virtue of the triad of the power of the Dharmakaya. These three causal situations or causes. The power of the Dharmakaya, the force of previous aspirational prayers while on the path, and the pure mind streams of those to be guided come together and, and produce the activity of the Rupakayas. Thus they are explained as the Kayas of dependent origination, but not taught to be just the eye consciousnesses of those to be guided. It's not, you know, totally dependent on the recipient. For if the scene of the physical form of injury were nothing but the eye consciousness of an ind individual being who sees it, it would follow that this that it has to appear even if the dominant condition of injury himself is absent, and that would be absurd. Uh, and that it has to appear even if the object condition is an impure ground in which his form cannot be reflected. So those three. Uh, um, situations have to be present for the Rupakayas to appear. The, the nature of the Dharmakaya, the um, force of previous aspirations, and the pure mind streams of those to be guided. Uh, therefore, would appear under the influence of these three factors coming together while not existing in actuality are the kayas of dependent origination, i.e. the rupakayas. All phenomena should be understood just like that. The nature of the mind, which is primordially empty of stains and luminous with qualities, does not abide as any entity in terms of superimposition and denial, such as existent, non-existent, real, or delusive. Thus, it is not an object of mind. The nature of mind is not an object of mind, unconfined with regard to everything and not biased in any way whatsoever. This is called Dharmadhatu, the, the true nature of the mind. Everything is suchness, the past, the present, the future, and so forth. Accordingly, the Dhatu, the Dhatu, once again, the Dhatu of the minds of all Buddhas, Bodhisattvas, Shravakas, Pratika Buddhas, and sentient beings is not different, just as the element of space is omnipresent in all forms. Dhatu is also element, and I think that's the main sense and how it's being used in this text, in the sense of element. Um, therefore, it is also said that the Buddhas see no phenomena other than the Dharmadhatu. All they see is Dharmadhatu. Also, all the places in which all Buddhas become fully perfect Buddhas, the means through which 
when they realize them, they become Buddhas, and the nature that represents the essence of their becoming Buddha are nothing but this Dharmadhatu. Not moving away from it is the abode of the Buddhas. They always abide by virtue of this Dharmadhatu, and it is not observable as abiding or not abiding. Therefore, it is described as the non-abiding abiding. <laughs> it, it, it surprises me always, like when the sense of humor that's there, like under the surface, just comes to the surface in that way, with, with statements like that. Though the Dharmadhatu is not connected to sentient beings, the stream of the basic element of sentient beings is nothing other than this Dharmadhatu. Therefore, it is also said that all Buddhas always abide in the stream of the basic element of sentient beings, because they're all the same in the Dharmadhatu. Through the power of this basic element in beings' own mind, streams of mind of virtue can arise in them, and they are able to see, to see spiritual friends and rupakayas, and through having purified their mind streams through that, they are able to see the dharmakaya of their own mind streams, just as it is. And the Uttara Tantra speaks about the power of this basic element, or dhatu. If the basic Buddha element did not exist, one would not be weary with suffering. Buddha nature is that which makes us weary of suffering. Without Buddha nature, we would all just be happily suffering forever, nor wish for nirvana and lack striving and aspiring for it. Uttara Tantra says that what appears as the enlightened activity of the Rubakayas is a reflection by virtue of the Dhatu of one's own mind stream and the force of virtues coming together. So the, the uh, is a, is a reflection by virtue of the Dhatu of one's own mind stream. So the, the uh, primordially present capability or potential of Buddhahood and the activities that we perform, the, uh, the disciplines that we undergo. In, indeed, ordinary beings do not understand that this is an appearance of their own minds. Not quite sure where that quote fits in, but... Uh, Based on that, the Dharmakaya of one's own mind stream will be seen just as it is. The inner genuine Dharmakaya will be seen through the eye of wisdom. Therefore, Buddhahood is neither regarded to be fully complete through just the Rupakayas, nor is it regarded as being other than the Dharmakaya. Likewise, it is neither regarded as solely the minds of those who see the Rupakayas, nor regarded as being other than their minds. Hence, all phenomena are taught to be mere dependent origination. Always comes back to that, just simply, you know, say, it's the best answer all time. Since the Dharmakaya is emptiness, the Rupakaya are suitable to appear as dependent origination, and one cannot observe any Dharmakaya that is other than the very dependent origination of the Rupakayas, because emptiness and dependent origination are the same thing, non-thing, I should say. Consequently, Nagarjuna in his Muldamadyamaka Karaka says, since there is no phenomena whatsoever that is not dependently originated, there is no phenomena whatsoever that is not empty or emptiness. Exactly this should also be understood in the context of fruitional Madhyamaka, what a neat term, the unity of the two kayas. Thus the position of some who claim to be wrong tongpas 
that Buddhahood is non-existent as anything, and the assertion by some who claim to be Zhendongpas that Buddhahood is a permanent substance represent destructions of the Buddha's teachings. For it has been taught again and again, those who even speak about the Buddhas as being either permanent or extinct, what other dharma what other dharma could there be about which they do not speak in terms of the extremes of permanence and extinction? Those who speak about the extremes of permanence and extinction are not his followers, and he is not their teacher, he being the Buddha. Okay, same thing in the, another quote, skipping that. Um... Let's skip this part. The Tirtakas and the Angulimalaya Sutra. Also, it is not good to assert that the Sambhogakaya is actual Buddhahood like an illusionist and that the Nirmanakaya is its magical creation. That's an interesting quote. But she doesn't... No, let's see. Thus, the Sambhogakaya is explained like the form of the moon in the sky, and the Nirmanakaya like the form of the moon that is reflected in water. This part was nice. However, this is not like the assertion in the systems of Vibhashikas and Sautrantikas that the form of the moon in water, though it appears like the form of the moon, is not the form of the moon. Because they're realists. They think that the form of the moon is a real entity, and the reflection is not a real entity. The form of the moon in water and the form of the moon in the sky are neither the same nor different. For if they were both the actual form of the moon, that is one, the moon would have to be in the water. If they were not both the actual form of the moon, that is different, the form of the moon in the water would have to be unable to point out the moon in the skies being released or not released from Rahu. <laughs> And who is Rahu anyway? And why is he bringing this up now again? I thought we had, had gotten over Rahu. <laughs> these guys are so silly. Therefore, these two are neither one, the same, nor different, other, and inexpressible as being real or not real as the form of the moon. The reason for how they appear are not understood by ordinary beings. In other words, you can't... None of us can understand the, the relationship between the Dharmakaya and the Rupakayas as being the reflection of the Dharmakaya in the water of the minds of sentient beings, thinking that they're different or thinking that they're the same. They are neither the same nor different. Uh, let's see, skipping all this stuff about drawing blood from and killing Buddhas and beans and so forth. Um, all these strange things. Gautam is an illusion and so on and so forth. He sums it up by quoting from Gampopa's Jewel Ornament. One should understand that the root two Rupakayas arise from the coming together of the triad of the blessing influence of the Dharmakaya. The same thing that he began with. Sort of summing, uh, repeating and summing up. It's that, how do the Rupakayas appear? Are they the same or different from the Dharmakaya? And what? why do they appear? What are they and why do they appear is the question, right? And they appear from the coming together of the triad of the blessing influence of the Dharmakaya, the sort of potential or uh, potentiality of the Dharmakaya. 
um, the appearances of those to be guided, the supplication or need of those who, who need to be uh, guided on the path and previous aspiration bears. If, uh, let's say, skipping the remainder of that quote because it's the same as what we've been through, he concludes, therefore, in order to dispel the clinging to a Buddha being conditioned and a person who is a collection of both matter and consciousness, the mindset of the Hinayana, it is also taught that a Buddha does not abide in his form. In general, these appearances of Rupakais are not included in the Skanda form. So finally, at the end, he's like coming back to the Abhidharma world. It's like, where do we put the Rupakais? They're the form Kais, but are they part of the Skanda form? No, that would be too simplistic. Um, for the Skanda form has already undergone its change of state. In the state of Arupakais, the Skanda form has transformed into what? I can't remember something. One of those lists of 11 things. Um, such as they are untainted by desires. It is taught that they are beyond the three realms and they are not included in samsaric existence or nirvanic peace. Thus it is taught that they do not consist of anything in existence of or peace. Therefore, they are beyond form. They display all as assuming all forms, though they are not included in sounds. They are included with with the melodious voice that has all aspects of all qualities, the voice of the Buddha. Though they are beyond the three realms, they do not move away from the three realms. Though they are not the objects of sentient beings, they appear as an infinite kayas that respectively guide each one of these sentient beings. And though they are free from any extent in that they are free from any middle and extremes and cannot be even and cannot even be exemplified by the, by the element of space they are the sole foundation of the benefit and happiness of all sentient beings we should have confidence in the buddha go for refuge and wish to attain this state but we who are even ignorant about the depth of just lake manasarovar How deep is Lake Manasarovar? Should not gauge the extent of this great water reservoir of the Buddha, which is not even matched by as many great oceans as there are sand grains in the Ganges River. Sort of a little bit of an anticlimactic ending, but a little, a little bit enigmatic. Basic message is that when somebody asks you what is Buddha nature, you, you should basically just say to them, forget it, and you'll never understand. <laughs> it's neither this nor that. It's not what you're thinking, it's, nor is it what not. you're not thinking. <laughs> nor is it something else. It's not a simple matter. Do you have a lot of, how much time do you have? <laughs> oh, God. Complicated text, boy. It's a complicated subject. And uh, we have a couple of minutes left. Let's just look at the outline of the, of the main, the best text and whole thing that is the reason for doing this freaking book to begin with. It seems to be a Buddhist version of evolution. This book? Yeah, the whole, the whole Buddha nature. Oh. 
That's an interesting way of looking at it. Darwin. Okay. Okay. It's like change of state, you know? We were evolving from one state to another. Yes. That's right. Buddhahood is the uh, highest state on the ladder of evolution, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, if you look at the planet, you know, we went from geology to biology. That was a change of state. And then biology discovered its interiority, you know, consciousness. That, that could possibly be another change. Because, you know, amoebas aren't thinking, but... And phrenology uh, uh, recapitulates ontology. Did I get that right? I think close. Philology? I'll look it up. Yeah, phenomenology. Something, the first one I screwed up on. Something recapitulates ontology. Look that up. Look that up. But it's but everything seems to be getting increasingly more and more complex, which is interesting because there's also entropy. So, working in the opposite direction. But but philology recapitulates ontology. Thank you, Emily. That simplifies everything. It's not getting more complicated. It's getting simpler. I. You're you're totally a QAnon, Rob. I'm just going to have to cut you off here. <laughs> anyway, freedom of speech is important. Let's take a quick look at the outline for the next text, which is the distinguishing between seriousness and um, friv- frivolity. And here we go. Okay. So here's here's this uh, outline of this text, and uh, first we have the detailed outline. We have the introduction, the title, paying homage, the commitment to compose, the usual stylistic things, and then we have oh the actual meaning of the text. First, we explain the aspect of consciousness. We're talking about consciousness and wisdom. So let's start with consciousness. Explaining that the root of mistakenness on non-mistakenness is not is mind. So everything starts with the mind. It's the root of both mistakenness and non-mistakenness. So everything is mind. And secondly, um, I'm sorry. Uh, based on that, understanding that appearances are mind. Back to mind only. In a in a in a not in the. Uh, sort of clunky sense. You know, we've been through the subtlety of mind only in this sense. And that mind, by the way, everything is mind, but that mind is unborn. That mind never happened. It never came about. It has no date of birth. And the causes and conditions of this whole uh Meshuggana thing is the eight collections of consciousness. First, we have the six collections, um, including the different conditions, object and dominant conditions. And then we have the immediate condition, condition together with the afflicted mind. This idea that the seventh consciousness has these two aspects it has afflicted mind and it also has the moment to moment attention of the immediate mind. This, this interesting, odd term and idea that Rong Jung Dorje comes up with. 
And the causal condition of the whole thing is the Ali consciousness. So this is the lay of the land of the topics that we're going to go through. And then we go through the change of state once again. The general meaning and then the detailed meaning. Uh, Mirror-like wisdom is Dharmakaya, wisdom of equality and discriminating wisdom are the Sambhogakaya, all-accomplishing wisdom is the Nirmanakaya, and the Dharmadhatu wisdom, the fifth, is presented in this text, and it's the Swabhavakakaya, the fourth kaya, that uh, sort of, in, on one hand is the uh, summation of the other three kayas, and on the other hand, seems to have something more that some of the parts is, uh, is greater than the whole or something like that the whole is greater than the sum of its parts there you go okay so in summary just so we can get a uh, remember it so it's not so much detail we have the aspect of consciousness and this uh, these key points that the root of everything is mind all appearances are mind, and mind is unborn. And then we go through the eight consciousnesses as the uh, root of mistakenness, the causing condition of mistakenness. And then we have wisdom, the uh, exploration of wisdom in the form of the kayas, oh, I'm sorry, in the form of the five wisdoms and how they relate to the five kayas being the change of state from the eight consciousnesses. So those are, that's the main layout of our text. So next week we'll dive into this last of our texts to finish up this book. Comments, suggestions, questions, announcements, spontaneous poems, jokes anything nothing i'm confused about where we are <laughs> i got it backwards ontogeny recapitulates phylogeny and what does it mean what does it mean emily ontogeny a theory in, in biology that the development of a embryo into a animal uh follows a similar path to the development of that species over time so like how Human embryos start with a tail, and that's like we evolved from an animal that had a tail, and it's covered so it's, in hair at one point, and our, you know, we used to be covered in so hair. So it's more than just our species. It's it's all species. Yeah, the that's the theory. All animal or... The, the, yeah. the, the development of the human uh, embryo, for as an example, goes through all the stages of the different forms of life that preceded it. Yes. Yeah, that's the theory. There's a the reptile form. There's a, a bird form. At one point, the embryo is like a bird. Is that right? And then it's like a dragon. <laughs> and then it's like, I don't know. You, you, missed, you missed from a single cell to multi-cell. <laughs> there you go. The yeah. very first stage, yeah. Protozoa to... Um, yeah, it has fish. Fish, fowl. Hog, calf, rabbit, human. <laughs> Hog, cat, rabbit? Calf. Calf. And rabbits? Rabbits like the last days? Rabbits stage? in there? I don't know. This is... Where's the gorillas and the apes? <laughs> this seems very uh, 
So is is there a parallel in Buddhism, anyone? Horns of a rabbit. (laughs) The horns of a rabbit. What's the parallel in Buddhism? Well, you told us that's what the path was like. Maybe it's the... Or it was like the history of of the progression of the Anas. There you go. Yeah. Yeah, Kevin. The heart of the pig. That sort of sums it up, the heart of the pig. Instead of the Buddha heart, the pig heart. Brave heart, no pig heart. <laughs> yes, tell that to the guy that just living with one. <laughs> I, oh, I saw that in the news. Right, that's what you're talking about. <laughs> yeah. There was a transplant of a pig heart into a guy's heart. I would not want to be that guy if, like, did they put that guy's name in the newspaper? They did. <laughs> Absolutely, you know, they, and they put his picture and everything. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I thought they'd been doing that for a while. No, I guess not. Maybe pig no. hearts. No. I know they did pig, a pig, pig kidney, and that was a big deal. Kidneys and pig valves oh. they've used for quite some time, but this was an entire heart, and all these, you know, ethical questions by certain people come up. Well, is you know, is is, is he really human? Yeah, <laughs> pig. <laughs> Well, I mean, they also talk, I think people who have experienced these kinds of transplants do talk about, I think, about experiencing, them, you know, differently. They can smell truffles. I I don't remember the details, but I just recall that I thought that was what? part of. Yeah, and, they haven't and survived the, I, that I, long I, yet. The kidney <laughs> transplant person didn't live very long. And this no, guy had only happened. How would they, they know that? No, the kidneys have been successful. They're doing them routinely now. And, you know, this is the, the height of genetic engineering. Because these pigs have to be genetically engineered uh, for certain proteins that are only human and removing proteins that aren't human. And so then they're bred in these sterile environments. They live in these sterile environments till they give up their body parts. It's very strange. Wow. So these are not just ordinary pigs. These are very specialized pigs. They have to remove a sugar, a sugar called alpha. It's called like alpha gal. There's a good, uh, if anyone listens to Radio Lab, there's a great Radio Lab. Yes, Radio Lab has a great podcast (laughs) about just this topic. And it's coincidental that this person actually uh, received this pig heart after that podcast was aired just last week. <laughs> you guys are making this stuff up. I, I don't believe no, any of No, no, sir. But I like that one about, you know, you come home and your dad who had the pig heart transplant is out in the yard searching for truffles. That's a good one. Chris, thank you for that image. <laughs> Yeah, because I'm a mushroom hunter and I can never find truffles. <laughs> but going back to Eric, the idea in the Buddhist tradition is that uh, the pr- the progression of an individual on the path is that we start with the Hinayana automatically, no matter what practice we're we're actually doing. That psychologically we begin with the Hinayana framework and then progress to the Mahayana and the Vajrayana, regardless of what uh, 
actual practices. But so it works best if you actually do those practices in addition, I guess. Anyway. Yeah. Yes. A serious <laughs> question? <laughs> no, I'm sorry. I, I just was looking because I was using your email of the readings for today. So I, yeah. And I'm very confused about where we're at <laughs> on that list of readings that you sent. I uh, we made it through the, we finished up to the Tatagata to heart, and then we went through Pawo Tsuglag Trangwa's presentation on the Kayas. And but that wisdoms. wasn't on the list, was it? I think so. And then I we, see Karma Trinlepe. Explanation of the Sugata Heart, and then the outline of the treatise on the distinction between consciousness and wisdom, and then Zamgon Conference. Yeah, I, I didn't commentary. figure it out. I think there's something off in there. I couldn't figure I, it out. I just, I but maybe if I read all of what you said to read, I would have figured it out. <laughs> oh, I totally screwed up. I went to the wrong, I went to the appendix instead of Karma Trinlipas. Yeah, How, oh, thank you so much. I totally I, screwed up. It was so oh, much so longer. I thought I forgot to read it too. I, I, to I read it, know. yeah. How was the, how was Karma Trinley's? Oh, lots of questions. I'm glad we didn't go through that, huh? Oh, come on. <laughs> okay, so we'll go through through his version next week. His is much shorter. It's like ten nine pages, right? Yes, ten pages. Uh, too many too many holiday uh, New Year's Eve parties, I guess, right? <laughs> okay, thank you for class. Eleven Karma Trinlepa's explanation of this to good heart. I see. So the original plan was to skip. Yeah. Always. Or at least it wasn't on there. I don't know. Yeah. <sighs> okay, more to the heart next week. <laughs> okay. So, yeah, thank you. We'll go through his next week, and then we'll dive into the final text. Okay, thanks. Thanks a lot. Oh, okay. It looks like a good one. It goes through all sorts of cool things. It goes through Datu, an ordinary mind, whatever and those And the continuum are. comes up again, so... Mm, he, can, he continues had, using had, that term. Yeah, I had questions about the continuum. Okay, yeah. Thank you very much for pointing that out, pointing out the Tathagata Heart text to me. That I missed. So let's conclude with uh, chanting our um, chant here. Here's the chant, in case people are not familiar with it yet. By this merit, may all obtain omniscience, may defeat the enemy, wrongdoing from the stormy ways of birth, old age, sickness, and death from the ocean of samsara. May I free all beings. By the confidence of the golden sun of the great east, may the lotus garden of the Rigdon's wisdom bloom. May the dark ignorance of sentient beings be dispelled. May all beings enjoy profound, brilliant glory.
Thank you. Happy New Year. Nice to see you. See you next week. Take care. Bye. <laughs> Pig hearts.